The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, of the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Every word, every single phrase is key to this paragraph. This, this paragraph is it's sort of classic Paul. It's loaded with prepositional phrases and clauses and everything is building on top of one another. And you have to really take it in little pieces to see the, everything he's saying. And Paul begins it by saying that now for the first time, or not really, he's not, he's not saying that now for the very first time we see the righteousness of God. He's, what he's saying is that now, on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see righteousness, and, and he makes it known in a way that is separate from the law, apart from the law. Namely, he's talking about righteousness that is revealed in the person and work of Jesus. It's the same righteousness that, that existed since the beginning of his creation, but it's revealed differently. The new revelation, though, gives us some new insight. It, 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 we want to pay attention to what's different about how he's revealed righteousness on this side of the cross versus how he revealed righteousness before the cross. And before we get too far, we need to stop and address what Paul means by righteousness. We, we talked about this a little bit last week. Not everyone was here last week. And it bears uh, reiteration. It's a deliberately vague phrase here, the righteousness of God. And, and here, it, it doesn't refer to God's own righteousness. Rather, it refers to a righteousness that is of God. In the sense that it comes from God, that it is at least potentially, uh, bestowed upon human beings. So it's not then that human beings sort of acquire a righteousness through a regular program of good deeds or religious activities growing progressively more holy until they are, in fact, objectively righteous. That is not what Paul has in mind. And it's not, he's not talking about that some idea like, it, despite our inherent evil, God acts like we're holy and clean, ignores our filth, He's not talking about that. It's not a pretending that we are righteous even when we're not. That's not what's going on here either. Instead, when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, then what he is talking about is a real and actual righteousness. It's a real righteousness that comes from God, and as we learned last week, is credited to our account. And the technical term here is imputed righteousness or imputational righteousness. It's what Luther called an alien or foreign righteousness, a righteousness that we do not possess of ourselves, but we possess it because it is imputed to us by God. But in saying that it's revealed to us apart from the law, that doesn't mean that the law is ignorant of it. And so the Old Testament, that's what Paul means by the law and the prophets. He says the, the Old Testament testified about it. They predicted it. It, it. it prophesied about a Messiah who would come and that God would cleanse his people. And if it hadn't, then the Old Testament covenant would have been worthless. Even as we talked about last week with the circumcision as the idea that it pointed toward faith, the whole Old Testament covenant needed to point toward something. It pointed toward the cross. Specifically, 
more than the cross, Paul says this righteousness is through faith in Christ. And so here we have the central theme that we discussed last week, sola fide. The righteousness that comes from God to us through faith. That's how it's accessed. That is the path of transmission. I'm going to come back to that idea in a second, but faith is the key. But then almost redundantly, Paul says in, in verse 21 here, excuse me, in verse 22, he says, for all who believe uh, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. Faith and believe being basically the, the same word here. And when he says for all who believe, he's, he's saying, the, here's the distinction he's making. And it builds on the next point. He is saying for Jews and for Gentiles. Okay, he's saying for all uh, who believe, he means Jews and Gentiles, all types of people. There is no distinction between people. And Paul wants to unpack that idea at much more length. And the paragraph that we're digging into is going to need some unpacking. And we're going to focus our attention then on the bombshell of this passage, which is what Paul drops next. So in verses 22 through 24, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me stop there for a moment. Paul begins by saying there's no distinction. And it's a little phrase that looks backward and it looks forward. So it looks backward to his statement um, that it's for all who believe. So it's all who believe without distinction. But it's also looking forward that all have sinned without distinction. Now, what does Paul mean by that? I'm guessing that you have a pretty good understanding. I've, I've frequently used this verse in sharing the good news with many people. Uh, if you have ever learned the so-called Romans Road gospel presentation, you know that this verse is a, is a key verse in, in what that is supposed to be explaining to people. And that's because to understand why the good news is good news, you need to understand the bad news. There are some things, it's like, uh, you know, if the doctor comes up to you and says, good news, there's a cure. And that's all you know. You're going to be confused. Now, if the doctor says, oh, oh, let me put that in context for you. You have a disease that would otherwise kill you. Great, I see how the fact that there's a cure now is very good news for me. So sometimes in order to understand good news, you have to understand the bad news that makes it good. And the bad news, Paul says, is that you are a sinner. Not just you, I am a sinner. Donald Trump and Barack Obama, both sinners. Pope Francis, sinner. Billy Graham is a 99-year-old sinner. There is no escaping it. And the effect of that is that we all fall short of the glory of God, which is not expression, but what Paul is saying is that 
Um, our imperfection renders us unable to stand in God's presence. So the thought of being with him, let alone for eternity, becomes sort of unthinkable because we are desperately wicked. In fact, Doug Moo points out that Paul's language here is something more like all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God in the sense of a regular or habitual pattern of falling short. You see, it's not merely the sins that you've committed uh, have made you unrighteous or unworthy of attaining eternal bliss with your creator. It's not as if you could say, from this day forward, no more, and, and so reach perfection. You need to understand, though, that your shared predicament is far more bleak than that. Our hearts are desperately turned toward rebellion in God, against God. And we fall into it, and we fall away from him on the regular. And that's a terrible, awful, scary proposition. And you need to feel the, the weight of it because you are quite literally lost. And, and we are in big, big trouble. And, and you, you cannot simply ignore this and make it go away. It's not a problem that will solve itself. I remember when I, I first heard this, or at least when, I, uh, when it first sunk in enough that I remember hearing it because when when the depth of my lostness hit me uh, it, it was like a ton of bricks and, and so it, it is etched in my memory I, I, I cannot forget the day I believe it was July 19th 1994 and I was up in Minnesota at a camp and this this speaker introduced me to this idea that I was a sinner and that this fact spelled my doom and that there was nothing I could do about it. And I went to bed that night absolutely convinced that it was true. I could not escape the idea that this was true. I knew deep down in me it was true. And I desperately wanted to do something about it. But it resonated that I couldn't. And, and so then, you know, my thoughts go to, you know, then what? You know, in, in eternity in hell? And I thought, certainly God must have a Loophole. There must be a catch. And I would learn that there is no loophole. In fact, exactly the opposite of that. Not a loophole, but a, a provision. Have you felt the, the weight of that? I'm not so sure that you can understand the good news until you, until you see uh, at least a semblance of the weight of your own depravity, the, the weight of how bad off you are. We love to just turn on the news and we, we look at the, the horrible things that are going on in the world and we, and we want to label these people and, and, and cast them aside as demons and monsters and and workers of evil, and, and I would never do anything like that. And I think sometimes we like listening to bad news on TV because it makes us feel maybe just a little bit like we're not that bad. But i, I got to tell you, you got to realize that, that as Martin Luther said there, but by the grace of God go I. And what he, what he meant when he said that is, no matter how deep the evil is that I see with my eyes or hear about with my ears, 
I could do that. I am bad enough to do that. And my deeds are just as bad. Maybe in the social conventions that we've built up in this world, we've decided that you know, the things that that guy on the news did are worse than anything I've done. But in the eyes of God, they are enough. They are enough. And we fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So just as all without distinction are sinners who are falling short, so all without distinction may be justified. That meant me in July of 94. That means you. How? How then? How, how can I access this? So there's, there, there is a, a provision. And, and Paul says, by his grace as a gift. Now you might be saying, if you heard last week and you paid attention very carefully, wait a second, we learned last week that we're justified by faith alone. Yeah, well, there are different meanings and levels to that word by. Um, it's like it depends on the definition of the word is. And, and, but that beautiful principle that Paul expounds in Romans 4 exists in the context of Romans 3. And that context points us to the idea that faith operates in the realm of grace. So don't miss this. When you get faith alone, you will find the heart of the gospel. When you get that idea, when you get that principle that we can be made right with God through faith alone, you will get the heart of the gospel. But when you find grace alone, when you get that, when you start to understand that, and you never, you never sink deeply enough in that one, but when you start to see grace alone, you will find the majesty of God. We are justified, Paul says, and what he means here is this idea of imputation. We are declared righteous, innocent, and right before God, and it's done freely. Paul says or, uh, it, it, it's done here as a gift by grace, which is almost redundant. The, the biblical notion of grace is an undeserved gift. It's something that you don't deserve to have, and it's given to you unnecessarily. Um, I mean, unnecessarily is not the right word, but it's, it's given to you undeservedly. And Paul punctuates it, lest there be any confusion with, with an adverbial form of the word gift. It's almost as if he says that, that it's given to us giftly. He justifies us giftly. But you get the idea, it's without any cost to us. Without any worth on our part. It's given without any consideration of who you are or who I am. John Calvin, the French reformer who fled persecution in his homeland and pastored from Geneva in Switzerland, put it this way. He says, he thus repeats the word to show that the whole is from God and nothing from us. It might have been enough to oppose grace to merits. But lest we should imagine a half kind of grace, he affirms more strongly what he means by a repetition and claims for God's mercy alone the whole glory of our, unrighteous, of our righteousness. 
which the sophists divide into many parts and mutilate, that they may not be constrained to confess their own poverty. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that there are many, many Christian thinkers out there, supposedly Christian thinkers out there, who really, really struggle with this. And the reason they struggle with it is, is because to accept that it is by grace and it is a gift and that it is absolutely free and comes at no cost demands me and, and anyone to understand that I am absolutely impoverished. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to bring before God but me. And that is a hard thing for us to accept as human beings. Because we are, even, even the most depressed and, and, and broken down among us are desperately proud people. And deep inside of us, we want to believe that we are so valuable, that the world should recognize us, that other people should see how great we are, that I've got something so much to offer, and I want you to see it. I want you to see my accomplishments. Look at my resume. Look at my LinkedIn page. Have you seen it? Look at what I've done. And even when we're too shy to do that, we still hold on in our hearts to these great things that we believe we are. If only someone recognized me, if someone would see it, if somebody would celebrate me. And so this idea that, that we would have to confess our absolute worthlessness, our absolute poverty, is a difficult one. Supposedly, the... Well, not supposedly, we know a, a scrap of writing um, at Luther's death. Last known words that we have of Martin Luther. We are all beggars, this is true. So we, we see that God's righteousness is available to us, but, but how? How, Paul, is this righteousness available? And Paul says it is effected by Christ, specifically through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the, the word redemption is a word that would have been used for a ransom payment. We think of a, a ransom most commonly uh, in the context of a kidnapping. You know, that great Mel Gibson movie. Um, but that's not the most happy image. So let's... let's don't really aren't happy. And when you have to ransom someone, it's not a good situation. Uh, in the Roman world, and, and I guess this is fitting for Veterans Day, uh, Veterans Day weekend, it was possible to ransom captured soldiers from an enemy. That was how the term was used. So if an enemy captured some of your soldiers, and so they're, they're made sort of prisoners of war, and you wanted to get them back, then there would be a cost to you, and you could secure their freedom but only at a price. And so you might pay that cost and so redeem or ransom the soldiers. And, and that's the underlying meaning of ransom, a, a securing freedom at a cost. We, we had a situation like this a couple years ago. I know it's, it's a bit politically charged, but it, it still helps you to see, so I'm not going to comment on the politics of it, because controversially, uh, controversially, a couple years ago, there was an American who went AWOL from his post in Afghanistan and was subsequently captured and held by the enemy for a number of years. And um, our government, having ascertained his location, uh, decided to ransom the soldier. We didn't use that terminology, but that's what we did. Sergeant uh, Bo Bergdahl was ransomed from the Taliban. The, the cost paid to secure Bergdahl's freedom was 
five captives from our detention center in Guantanamo Bay. And those uh, captives were placed under Qatari custody for at least one year. And, and that was ransom or redemption. It was securing the freedom of Bo Bergdahl at a price, five captives from Guantanamo Bay. It was a ransom. That is what ransom is. It's securing freedom at a price. And Paul says that this justification that God freely gives comes in the form of a ransom that is in Christ Jesus, which tells us a couple things. First, it tells us that we are not free. Our sin is a prison of sorts. We are slaves. The Bible says elsewhere that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So without faith, we live lives in a state of divine displeasure. Constantly, as we've seen, falling short of the glory of God. And since we have no recourse but sin, we are effectively slaves to sin. So first it tells us that we're not free. Second, it tells us that we have little part in the matter. And what I mean by that is that the, the ransomed has very little say over whether or how it is ransomed. Uh, Bo Birdall did not negotiate his ransom price. He didn't pay his ransom price or in any other way secure his freedom. He needed another party to step in and do that for him. Likewise, if you, if you take a watch to a pawn shop, to secure some extra money with the hope that someday you might redeem your watch, guess what? The watch has no say in the matter. The watch can't buy itself back. The watch can't put up a price to get itself back on your arm. It will do nothing to secure its release. The owner must do that. So it's the same with us. And so there's a righteousness that gets to us through faith, and this righteousness is secured as a ransom of undeserving sinners. So how does that work, Paul? And why this path? And these are answered in Paul's third point, which is sort of the plan behind God's righteousness. So in verses 25 through 26, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this is an entirely jam-packed couple of lines. And, and in truth, it's all part of the same sentence that started in verse 23. It's a very complicated sentence, though, and so we, we have to break it up somewhere. Um, and in verse 25, you have this jumping-off point in the sentence. And he jumps off from Jesus Christ who is central to all of this. And, and Paul announces that Jesus was part of a great plan. Paul begins by saying Jesus Christ was put forward by God. Some translations might say something like publicly displayed. And the idea seems to be that Jesus in some capacity has been put out there before the world to be grasped hold of. Or not. And what's significant here is what sort of capacity Jesus has been put forward. And the answer is as a propitiation. 
And I'm guessing that most of you don't know what a propitiation is. And in part, because of that, many translations have attempted to come up with something a little bit more user-friendly. But there's not really any other word or phrase in the English language that captures what's going on here, like the word propitiation. And it's been further obscured by the fact that some modern thinkers do not like what the word propitiation implies. A propitiation is something that propitiates. That's, that's really helpful. Um, but that's what it'll say if you look it up. When you propitiate, here's what you're doing. You're turning away, removing wrath. The Greeks used this word to describe subduing the wrath of their many pagan gods. In the Old Testament, significantly, the word gets used for the cover of the Ark of the Covenant that was in the most holy place in the tabernacle or later the temple. The place where the high priest would come and he would make atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel. And it was a key element of the turning away of the wrath of God. It was a propitiatory thing. And so this word is used to describe it. And it's possible that Paul has in mind the mercy seat at least by way of allusion, as sort of in the background, but in any event, the fundamental sense of the word Paul's using here is propitiation. And that is, frankly, not a popular view this day because of what it implies, and yet it's what he says. So the, the great modern hymn, <clears throat> In Christ Alone, sings, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's a powerful line drawn straight from Romans 3 here. But one major United States denomination, I won't tell you which one, uh, loved the song. But they wanted to change that line. Because they didn't like what it implied. They didn't want to have theological controversy. They didn't want to harm the education of their parishioners. That's what they said. And so they wanted to change the line from the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. Which is true. But how is it that we are so reluctant to speak what Scripture has spoken? You see, if Jesus was publicly put forward as a propitiation then the original lyric is exactly right. God's wrath against the Christian was satisfied and extinguished by the death of Jesus on the cross. And so you'll see here that God is making this Jesus available. That's grace too, isn't it? God puts Jesus forward as a propitiation. We don't find ourselves a sacrifice as David says in Psalm 51, as Ryan read this morning, uh, you know, a sacrifice is not what you call for, is not what you want. The sacrifices of our God are a broken and a contrite heart. We don't find in ourselves a sacrifice. We don't find in ourselves some sort of uh, moral good that pacifies God's just anger. Like when you, when you make your girlfriend... 
uh, or your wife really mad, and so you do a lot of really good stuff until she gets over it. You can't do that much good stuff to get God over it. If you think that's the case, you don't understand sin. You don't understand how bad you are. Helpless. Slaves of sin. That's what we are. And yet God graciously comes through. And how can we take hold of this propitiation? There's a propitiation. There's something. God is, is angry and justly angry. He's ferocious. He's terrible. He is awesome. And I am rightly terrified for my life. How do I, how do I take hold of this? And Paul says, in effect, that he becomes a propitiation for us through faith. As I said, I was going to come back to this. There's this fundamental sense that our justification, which secures salvation for us, rescue from the consequences of our sin, is by grace alone. And So then what of faith? Well, faith is like the channel through which grace is heaped on us. It is a, a God-given conduit for his grace. Justification is by grace alone in the sense that God's free and lavish and gratuitous grace is predicated nothing on nothing in us and solely in his goodness and his pleasure and his will. And it is the only basis for our justification. In that sense, justification is by grace alone because grace is the only basis for our justification. But justification is by faith alone in the sense that God-given faith is the only channel by which we might receive this grace. There's no other pathway for this grace to be heaped on you except through faith. Not through the sacraments, not through a life of good deeds, not through a trying to make yourself a moral person. Uh, the only channel through which this grace comes to you is the recognition that you desperately need a Savior. You trust Jesus to be that Savior, and so you turn from your past life. And so I said earlier that if you grasp faith alone, you will grasp a hold of the gospel of eternal life. But if you grasp grace alone, you will grasp the majesty of God. Because in God's grace, we're, we're, we're caught up in the unfathomable riches and mystery of his will and purposes. Consider what, what Paul says next. He says, the purpose of all this, this was to show, he says, this is the purpose is to show us God's righteousness. And here the sense of righteousness is probably a little bit different. We, we talked about this a little bit last week, but uh, the ideas of righteousness and justification and just and justice, they're all wrapped up in the same group of words. And there's an overlap of meaning in, uh, in Greek and, and Hebrew that we don't quite have in English. And so the and the meaning is probably a little bit more toward the side of, of justice here. And because what Paul is, is saying is that God wanted to demonstrate that he was indeed righteous, that he was indeed just. How so? Well, before the cross, 
God didn't deal with sin as we might expect him to deal with sin. If everything we know about sin is true, if, if sin does separate us from God, if, if sin is our regular habit and it causes us to constantly fall short of the glory of God, and that is the common lot of all humanity, then certainly God ought to have punished and, and punished us justly, severely. And yet he didn't. Not always. Many who went before the cross of Jesus Christ did not receive the onslaught of God's wrath. And, and Paul explains in Romans 4, which we looked at last week, that they shared faith. We, you know, they, they had the faith that Abraham had. And that, and that faith was credited as righteousness. But, but God, aren't you a just God? Doesn't a just God have to punish sin? See, faith can't exist in a vacuum. Sin and, and the just wrath for sin had to be dealt with. Throughout Scripture, you'll see that one of God's most important characteristics is that he's just. I think this is a whole other sermon, but I think it's something that we have too often as American Christians have neglected, that God is a just God. And if we are going to um, exhibit his characteristics and, and be like our Savior, Jesus Christ, we should be a people who promotes justice. Now, we have to make sure that we define that in God's terms and not the terms of our culture, but we should be a people that promotes justice because it's one of his central characteristics. And, and so if he doesn't punish sin faithfully, if he lets the sinner off the hook, then he's unjust. There's no way around it. But Paul says that on the cross, Jesus became the means by which God reconciles love and wrath, anger. He reconciles mercy and justice. And so he shows himself both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. In other words, he is just or righteous in and of himself, and he's the one who makes righteous, declares righteous, those who have faith in Jesus. He does that at the point of the cross. And he can do that at the point of the cross because at the point of the cross, the wrath of God is poured out on Christ as a substitute and so propitiates the wrath, removes the wrath that deserves to fall on me and perhaps on you, removes it so that you can receive a judicial declaration of innocent, righteous. And that gift, that grace, comes to you through faith. So let's break this down. God freely justifies. God freely establishes this plan. God freely gives the Son. God freely sets the Son as a propitiation. And from eternity past, then this justification, which leads to our salvation, is entirely by grace. 
And there's nothing you can do to merit it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do. Except receive it through God-given faith. If this is indeed the case, then there are beautiful and majestic implications of this. One, one is, is that there's hope for us. Because I, I would reason with you that if this is not the case, there's not hope for us. If there is not grace from God this big, this powerful, this amazing, then we're hopeless. Because there is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves righteous before a holy God. So there's hope. Number two, we're secure. If indeed you've come to have this saving faith, if indeed you have placed your trust You've accepted what Jesus has done and you have fully relied on it and said, I will stop trying to propitiate your anger on my own. I will stop trying to make you pleased with me on my own, God. I understand that in and of myself, I am incapable of doing that. I wholly lean on Jesus to do that on my behalf. I thank you, God, for the sacrifice that you make available in Jesus. When you have that, look, if, if the God who planned to demonstrate his righteousness and his justice and his wrath together in the cross waited patiently from eternity past for that moment, the God who then set Jesus up there and made a path. And, and the God who, who sent preachers to preach the good news that you might hear it. By his grace. Because it brought him good pleasure to do so. If, if every step along that way he graciously holds this out to you. He's not suddenly going to let go of you. So that's a second implication. And a third implication is this, that no matter who you are and no matter what your background is, because there is no distinction, the, the people who have striven their entire life to be righteous and have looked outwardly in the world like a good person or those who have lived their entire lives in uh, self-gratifying depravity, no matter what evils you've done, no matter what goods you've done, there's no distinction. Whether you are an American or whether you are a foreigner, whether you are um, old or whether you are young, no matter where you fall, there's no distinction. There's no distinction. There is an opportunity then, isn't there? That no matter how good you've left, lived your life or how bad you've lived your life in the eyes of the world. You're in the same boat 
And that's both bad news and good news. It's bad news because the wrath of God abides on you, but it's good news that equally the grace of God in Christ Jesus is available to you. And you can accept that. You can receive that through faith even today. Not accepting a new program, a new resolution of how you're going to live your life good now. A resolution that you are going to throw yourself constantly and always at the foot of the cross. Recognizing your inadequacy. And then, the name Christian will truly be appropriate for you. Let's pray. Father, cause us to search our hearts. Cause us to look deep inside us and see whether we are true to ourselves, whether we are true to you, whether we have clung desperately to grace, or whether we have assured our own selves that we are okay because we're good or we're not that bad. By your Spirit, convict us of sin and sinfulness and show us if there's any evil way in us. Show us, God, how we have not relied on Christ and renew our commitment to the cross. And for those who do not yet cling to that cross, God, may they throw away any pretensions of strength and security and pride and resolve and so find life at the foot of that cross. It's in the name of Christ who hung there. It's our propitiation that we pray. Amen.